Hi, my name is Jill. The Old Testament reading is found in Isaiah 62, 1 through 5. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Bill. The New Testament reading is found in Romans 8, 15 through 17. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Allison. Thanks for standing for the gospel reading found in Matthew 5, 2 to 12. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing, if you would, just for a moment. Heavenly Father, you certainly don't need an invitation into this house, but we, right now, just say that you are invited. So would you come? Would you fall on this place in such a sweet way that we would see you, we would hear you, and that we would know you in this place? And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Good morning. How are we doing? Happy 3rd of July, one day early. Hey, my name is uh, Joey Jimenez. For those of you who are visiting here at New Life Downtown, uh, I am one of two associate pastors 
here at New Life Downtown. Our lead pastor, uh, Glenn Packiam, is actually almost halfway into a sabbatical that he and his wife and their family are enjoying right now. So um, Pastor Evan and I are excited uh, to kick off a new series that we'll start today entitled Thy Kingdom Come. We'll be teaching over the next four weeks on this, uh, this idea of the kingdom of God. What is it? What is the kingdom? What did Jesus mean by saying the kingdom of heaven is like the kingdom is in your midst? What did Jesus mean by saying thy kingdom come? It's a familiar phrase for those of us at New Life Downtown. It comes from a prayer that we say often here at New Life Downtown as part of our liturgy. It's an excerpt from what we call the Lord's Prayer. And it's a passage, it's a section of scripture that makes up a part of the Sermon on the Mount, a section of scripture where Jesus is offering to the disciples, to his closest friends, some instruction on how they are to pray. And so Jesus gives them these words, and Jesus offers them this picture. He says, I want you to pray like this, thy kingdom come, he says. Thy kingdom come, and thy will be done, here on earth in this place, as it is in heaven let thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's rule and God's reign. Thy kingdom and thy will here on this place, on earth as it is in heaven. You can imagine what is happening in the disciples' minds as they begin to hear these words and begin to think just for a moment, what is this kingdom that Jesus is talking about? What will it look like? This is early on in Jesus' ministry that he offers them these words. What will this kingdom look like? What will it mean for me? What will it mean for my family? What will it mean for my brothers and sisters, the people of God? Let thy kingdom come. Early on in Jesus' life, when we look at his life and ministry through the lens of the gospel writers and those around him, Early on in Jesus' life, it's really easy to see that Jesus came to reveal both the Father and a way of life that was radically different than anything that was seen, than anything that had been known at that time. Jesus came to reveal the Father, the King, and Jesus came to reveal a way of life that was radically different than anything we had seen, anything anyone had seen at that time. Everything that Jesus said, so you have to put on your lenses for a second. If you were to look at the Gospels, everything that Jesus said, everything that Jesus did, the people he hung out with, the people he surrounded himself with, everything that Jesus said and did and his, his friends, everything stood in stark contrast to the acceptable norms of his day and age, of his time. And not only that. But as we dissect, as we look into the specific things that Jesus said, the things that he taught, as we look into the things that Jesus did, most notably some of his miracles, we're going to notice that not only did they stand in stark contrast, but oftentimes the things that Jesus said offended, both offended the mind and the heart, the idea that most Jews and Gentiles at this time had come to believe would be true about the Christ, about the Messiah, and about the coming of the kingdom. This is the very beginning of a section of scripture that makes up chapters 5 through 7 in Matthew's gospel that we call the Sermon on the Mount. This first section we call the Beatitudes. Jesus wastes very little time getting to the point of what he is going to do over the course of these three chapters. 139 words is what makes up this section called the Beatitudes. 
139 words. And you heard this a moment ago, but this is what Jesus does. He wastes very little time in turning upside down the idea, the idea of what life was all about, the idea of what it meant to be blessed, the idea of how we were supposed to live and move and have our being. And Jesus says, blessed are the poor. Jesus goes on to say, blessed are those of you who mourn. Jesus goes on to say, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These words for the audience that was there listening to Jesus, no doubt these words did not fall just casually on their ears. But if you can imagine a first century Jewish audience listening to Jesus start off what would be a massive discourse on what life in the kingdom was to be like, these first few words, I'm sure, would start or started to elicit a specific response. If you can imagine somebody walking in and saying, hey, everything you know about life is wrong. I can imagine, in, in fact, put on your, your imagination cap for just a, a second and think about the actual expressions that probably began to arise on the face, on the faces of the men and women, the Jews and the Gentiles who were there listening to Jesus, hearing him talk. I would imagine that for some of these folks who had a very ingrained, a very... Um, a long or a a well-substantiated picture of what the king would be like and the kingdom would be like, I would imagine the expression on their face would actually start to reflect a bit of anger. Who does this guy think that he is? I would imagine that there's some confusion, even for the disciples, even for the folks who are listening to him who had come to know him, that there's confusion. But I have to think that there's also in this audience a few men and a few women present whose expressions look radically different than everybody else's. I have to believe that there are a few men and women whose expressions actually begin to reflect a bit of hope. There are men and women, perhaps it was those who were familiar with what it meant to mourn. Perhaps it was those men and women who were well acquainted with meekness. Perhaps it was those men and women, the expressions on the faces of those men and women who were all too familiar with hunger and thirst, who had begun to think or who had been praying probably a lot like you and I have prayed at times, there has got to be more than this. I would imagine that the expression on some of their faces looked like hope, that it looked like perhaps relief, And that maybe it looked like even joy realized that even though they were just hearing something for the very first time, that they were beginning to sense that this man was different and that what he was offering was perhaps an answer to prayer. For most scholars, this three-chapter sermon called the Sermon on the Mount makes up what most believe to be Jesus' formal declaration. Seems fitting for this weekend. This makes up for most scholars what many believe to be Jesus' formal declaration of the kingdom of God. This is what life in the kingdom will look like. Jesus started nearly every section of these three chapters by saying, you have heard it said that, but I say to you, you have heard it said this, that, and the other, but what I am here to say to you is this. 
Jesus would imagine that the scene, that the atmosphere of this moment, the entire beginning and end of the Sermon on the Mount, beginning with the Beatitudes, felt something like the moment when Jesus, after being tempted in the desert, shows up. And in the synagogue, he finds the place in the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he reads the messianic promises, the promises about the coming of the Messiah, and then emphatically says, in front of everybody, announces that all of these prophecies have been fulfilled through me. would imagine that this moment, Jesus announcing, declaring, inviting the coming of the kingdom of God, that the atmosphere felt very similar as Jesus emphatically declares that there is a new way of life that is not only possible, but that it is available right here and right now. And in fact, the next three years of Jesus' life, his public, his public ministry, everything that he would say, every teaching, Everything that he would do, every miracle would serve as an exclamation point to this declaration, would serve as an exclamation point to what Jesus is saying through the Sermon on the Mount by saying, you have heard it said that, but what I say unto you is this. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 and 29, Matthew accurately captures the atmosphere of the scene, just how thick this must have felt when Matthew says this. It says that when Jesus had finished what is at this point the longest sermon that Jesus would ever give, and I appreciate that because I'm a little long-winded, and so when I see a reference that Jesus is a, long-winded, a little bit long-winded, I feel a little bit of peace right there. It says that Matthew, at the end of this sermon, it says that when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished. Love that word because I think it best captures both the good and the bad. Astonished can go either way, right? Astonished in a good way. And astonished in a bad way. For example, I was astonished this weekend at just how bad Independence Day 2 really was. It was astonishingly bad. Spent $12, XD Cinema, not worth it. It says, when Jesus finished his Sermon on the Mount, when when Jesus finished the saying, these sayings, the crowds were astonished, good astonished. It says the crowds were astonished at his teaching for this reason. It said that he taught as one who had authority. So picture that scene again. Jesus turns an everyday mountain, the side of Pike's Peak, into a a classroom. And he begins to tell them, I know that you've come to believe this, but there's a different way of life. There's a different way for you to live. Not only that, not only does he tell them about this way of life, but like I said, everything that Jesus would say and do over the course of the next three years of his public ministry would be the exclamation point on this moment showing them that not only was it available, but that it was possible. Jesus would make good on this promise every day for the next three years of his life. That there is a way of life that is different. Jesus taught as one who had authority. If you're a note taker, I want you to write down those five words. As one who had authority. Jesus, we can be sure, was unlike anything that these men and women, that these early first century Jews and Gentiles, he was unlike anything that they had ever seen. Jesus was unlike anything they had ever known. And we can be certain also that Jesus was unlike even the best things that they had imagined the Christ, that the Messiah 
would look like and do and say. Jesus was unlike anything. Jesus was revealing a way that was truly, truly radical. Now, I know we use that phrase a lot today, but Jesus was revealing a way of life that was truly radical, truly different, counterculture in every way, shape, and form, a way of life that was governed not by the rules of this world, but Jesus was revealing a way of life that was governed by the rule of God. Jesus was revealing a way of life that was governed by the rule of God. So the obvious question, if his life was governed by the rule of God, then what's the source? Who is the source of Jesus' authority? And the answer is just as simple. Jesus lived and moved and had his being. He was one with the Father. We know that. So what I want to suggest to you is this. As we begin to take a look at, excuse me, what, what is the kingdom of God? How do we define the kingdom of God, what it's about? I want to offer you this, this picture. That Jesus is able to operate in the authority of the king, in God's kingdom. Jesus is, op- is able to operate in the authority of the king because he has surrendered to the authority of the king. Jesus is able to operate in the authority of the king because he has first surrendered to the authority of the king. Jesus at multiple points throughout scripture says this of himself. He says the son can do nothing on his own but only what he says, what he sees the father saying and only what he sees the father doing. Just to be clear, this is not some robotic, mindless form of obedience. It's actually much more beautiful. It has everything to do with relationship. Jesus operates under the authority of the Father and in the authority of the Father as a result of an intimacy between Father and Son. To be fully known, to be trusted, to be seen. Nobody knows the Father except the Son and those to whom he wishes to reveal him, we're told also. That Jesus is able to operate in the authority because of an intimacy with the Father by means of a relationship through which we are able to see the things of the kingdom, the things that are natural in the kingdom manifest here on earth. Jesus is revealing the Father and Jesus is revealing the kingdom at the same time. We're going to take a look at both of these over the course of the next four weeks. But before we move any further, I want to share two things that I think are significant, important for us to consider as we consider the kingdom. And the first is this. That it is the rule of God that upholds the kingdom of God. It is the rule of God that upholds the kingdom of God. And what I mean by that is not the realm. Do not mean rule as in realm. The kingdom of God, in fact, has less to do with the place and everything to do with what will ultimately be under the sovereign reign of God. And it is the rule of God, like we see in Jesus' life. It is the rule of God that serves as the foundation that upholds the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? And the second part is this. There is absolutely no concept of kingdom in the Bible that exists apart from relationship. There is absolutely no concept of kingdom that exists in the Bible apart from relationship. You cannot have king without country. You cannot have king without country. Relationship is everything. Jesus Jesus models that for us. The son can do nothing on his own. So what are the facets of relationship? I'll offer two, maybe three. The first being obvious, our relationship with the king. You cannot have kingdom without relationship. And the first and most important relationship is our relationship with king. The second is our relationship, the relationship that we get to enjoy with those around us. 
the relationship that we have with others, others, excuse me. And third, I think, would be the relationship that we are invited into with creation. There is no concept of kingdom that exists apart from relationship. So if everything that Jesus said and did was to reveal the Father, if everything that Jesus Christ said and did was to reveal the Father and to show us a way of life that was possible right here and right now, then I believe that this third thing is true also. In order to understand the nature of the kingdom, we first must seek to understand the nature of the king. In order to seek to understand the nature, the what is the kingdom all about, what will the kingdom be like, in order to seek to understand the nature of the kingdom, we first must seek to understand the nature of the king. One of my favorite philosophers said that any life would be well wasted asking this question over and over. Who are you, God? Who are you? Moses prayed this way, show us your, show us your ways so that we would know you. Who are you, God, and who do you say that I am? Who are you, God, and who do you say that I am? So if we're going to understand the nature of the king, we first must seek to understand the the kingdom. We first must seek to understand the nature of the king. And there is perhaps everything that Jesus said and did reveals the nature of God the Father, reveals the nature of who ultimately will be king in the kingdom of God. But there's perhaps no story that I am drawn to more than the story of the prodigal son. Jesus tells this parable in Luke 15, and it's one of three parables that Jesus is using to describe the attitude of somebody who would chase after something that once was lost. Jesus uses parables throughout the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount for this reason. Because it would confuse the wise, those who were wise in their own eyes, but also to help those with a little bit of imagination begin to construct a worldview that would look different than the one that they had. The kingdom is not going to look like anything you currently can think of. So Jesus spoke in parables, and this is one of my absolute favorite that I think captures the heart of the king and in this story a father. Jesus tells this story He says that there was a father who had two sons. And on this specific day, the younger of the two sons approaches his father and says to his father, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. Essentially saying to his father at this point, I'm unwilling to wait for you to die. Give me my share of the inheritance right now. You can imagine how those words felt as they landed on the ears of the father. So what does the father do? He divides his inheritance between both sons, and he gives it to them both right then and there. We're told in the story that just a few days later, that the younger son takes everything that he had just been given, and, it set, and he sets out for a distant land, a place, a, a, a distant country where he would be a foreigner. He's stepping into an identity that was never intended to be his. It says that while he's there, it says that he squanders his property in reckless living. Some translations say that he wasted everything in wild living, life without rules. And not soon after, there's a famine in this country. Things go from bad to worse pretty quickly. And it says that he realized how starving he actually is. Perhaps one of the first times in his life he's experiencing need. And so he says that he's in an unfamiliar country, a place that was not intended to be his. And he goes and he hires himself out to a person who is never intended to give him instruction. Because he's desperate. 
And so this foreigner puts him to work in his farm feeding the pigs. And we're told that he grows so hungry over the course of his time serving in this stranger's household on this stranger's farm that he longed that the food that they were serving, the slop that they were serving the the pigs began to appear appetizing to him. Everything is changing for him in the wrong direction. One of my favorite passages in Scripture now that I'm a father is that it's, it says that when the son came to his senses, I have two little girls, and that, that, that sentence, when they came to their senses, means something entirely different to me now than it did before I had kids. It says that when the son came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough food? How many of my father's men actually have food to spare? And here I am, and I'm starving. So he hatches this great plan to go back to the father. And not only that, but he begins to rehearse an apology that is an apology above all apologies. I have sinned against heaven and earth and against you, he tells himself. I've sinned against heaven and earth and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called one of your sons. Therefore, make me like one of your hired hands. And he sets off on his journey home. What I love about the story, what I love that Luke captures is this picture of the king, this picture of the father in this story. But it says that the father, while he was still a long way off, let those words settle for just a moment, while he was still a long way off, which has to mean that he had been waiting and watching for his son's arrival, anticipating maybe today will be the day that my son comes back. While he was still a long way off, we're told that the father is filled with compassion. Literally, that word in the Greek means that there was a nodding up inside of him where he could not stand still, so he runs. And to run in this day and age as a father, as a grown man, he was wearing a robe. To run in this day and age, in order to run, you had to take the hem of your robe and tuck it into your belt so you can be sure that the father is running from from front door to front gate with everyone watching looking like an absolute fool. This is a shadow, a foreshadow of the cross. So the father runs to meet him, and what does he do? Begins yelling at him and saying, you idiot, why would you ever leave? No. You know the story. The father shows up, and it says he can do nothing but lavish his son with hugs and with kisses. His son at this moment, if you can imagine watching his father begin to run, if there's a point, and I know that we've all done this, if there's a point where you've rehearsed an apology and are getting ready to make it, and you see somebody running towards you whom, to whom you are about to apologize to, that's when your knees begin to get weak. And he sees his father come, and what does his father do? He wraps his arms around him, and he begins to hug him and kiss him. And so the son enters into his grand apology, but what happens? I think it's important to know, for us to remember that the son is actually not back because he misses his dad. He's not back because of his love and affection for his father. The son came back. This is a violation of intimacy. The son came back because he's desperate for a meal. And what does the father do? As he launches into this grand apology, but the father wraps him up in his arms, begins to kiss him. I would imagine these are big kisses. Begins to kiss him. And then not even listening, ignoring entirely the son's apology, he begins to shout instructions back up to the house. Quick, somebody bring the best robe, he said. We sang this song just a moment ago. Quick, somebody go and, b- and bring the best robe and put them on him. If it's the best robe in the father's house, I can assure you that that robe belongs to the father. Go and get my robe and put him on him. 
And then don't stop at the robe. While you're there, get the ring. And not just any ring, but get the family ring. And come and put the ring on him and grab some sandals and put sandals on his feet. And not only that, can you imagine what the son is, was, is how he is responding in this moment? Not only that, tell somebody to prepare the fattened calf because tonight we celebrate the son of mine who once was dead is now alive. Can you imagine what's going through the son's head? How his, his picture, his idea of the father is changing in this moment. But there's another son in the story, and we're familiar with his story as well. It says that he's out in the fields working, and when he shows up, he begins to hear music. He begins to hear the celebration, and he meets another, uh, one, of the, one of the employees at his father's farm, and he says, what's going on? What's all the music and the dancing? And the, and the, older son, and, and the servant says to the older son, Your father has butchered the fattened calf and thrown a celebration because your son has returned. And the older brother is indignant. He refuses to enter into the party. Refuses. In fact, it is the father in the story that we're told who has to come out of the house to plead with the older son. And this is what the older son says to the father when the father, at his request, says, come in. The older son says, can't believe you. I can't believe that you would welcome back this, this son of yours, he says, who wasted everything, who ruined everything, who wasted everything that you gave him on prostitutes and drunken living. And he says this, which I think is important. He says, all these years I have slaved for you. All these years, I've never left. I've never done anything wrong. And he uses this phrase, all these years I've slaved for you, he says. And you haven't given me so much as a fattened goat. And this son of yours who ruined everything comes back and you butcher the fattened calf. And the father's response to him in this place is my son. You see, even the younger son, two times, excuse me, two times the younger son mistakes his identity. He forfeits his identity as a son by leaving to a foreign country and then coming back, he chooses a lesser identity. Make me like one of your hired hands. Both times the father is unwilling for him to exist in that place. Here in this moment, in this story with the older brother, it's the exact same thing. I've slaved for you. He's chosen a lesser identity even though he never left the house. I've slaved for you. And the father says to him, my son, that's not who you are. Calls him, my son. You're right. You've never left me. But all I have has always been yours. Never left. Always existed in the presence of the Father. Always existed, per se, in the kingdom. But he chose to exist in the presence of God and to live as someone he was never intended to live as. Chose to live as a slave rather than a son. I love this story because if we are going to understand the nature of the kingdom by means of understanding the nature of the king, there are a couple of things. There are so many things about the nature of God in this story that I could point out, but I want to point out just three. The first is this it's that he is just, believe it or not. That he is just. However, his justice looks radically different than the justice we know. 
that the king is just, but his justice looks radically different than anything you and I can imagine. The second is this, that he's generous. The father in this story, the ring and the robe, the sandals in his celebration, he's generous. What the son deserves versus what he receives stand in stark contrast to one another, do they not? I would have given him something radically different. The king is generous. The ring and the robe, the sandals and the celebration. And lastly, is that the king is kind. The king is kind. Here's what I love about this story. I think we look at the gifts and think, well, he's probably come a long way. He needs shoes. He needs a ring because he's back and should probably put on something better, something that looks better than what he's wearing. But I think the gifts actually convey so much more. I think, I think the father in this story and the way that Jesus tells this parable, I think the father gives these gifts for a reason, and the reason is this. He's trying to reveal a new way of life. For these sons, it was always meant to be their way of life. For you and I, it was always meant to be our way of life, a life of relationship, a life of intimacy. He's trying to invite both sons back into a way of life. And for the younger son in particular, he, he recognizes just how difficult it would be for him to actually stand up. Can you imagine that for a moment? After what he had said to his father, after what he had done to come back and to have the father actually taking his robe and putting it on his shoulders. Can you imagine how difficult that would have been? To have, put your hand out and have somebody from the family put the ring that you forfeited back on your finger after you had done nothing to deserve it. And then to say, come up, stand up. I believe in my heart that the father gave these specific gifts to his son because he knew that he would need them along the way as reminders. Can you imagine that walk from the front gate to the front door? The amount of guilt and shame as everyone who knew, everyone who, who was aware of his story sees him walking back with his father. Can you imagine the thoughts in some of their minds? How could, how could he possibly give him that after what he did? I think the father gave these gifts out of his kindness because he knew exactly what this younger son of his would need to stand up and to actually believe and to enter into a way of life that was different than even the best way of life he could have imagined. Does that make sense? Identity is central to understanding the nature of the king. And identity is also central to understanding who, excuse me, who we are in the king's eyes. And not only that, identity is central to us understanding how we are to exist in his kingdom. For years, for years, the, the younger son's apology rang true in my story. I don't deserve any of this. And I actually don't know how to enter into it. So why don't, for the sake of you, God, as if I could guard his dignity, why, why not for the sake of all of this, just make me like one of your hired hands? But here's the reality of the kingdom of God and your role in it. It might be good theology that you and I are sinners saved by grace. It might be very good theology that you and I are sinners saved by grace. But the least that you will ever be in the kingdom of God is a son or a daughter with an experience of sin. Amen? The least that you and I will ever be in the kingdom of God is a son and a daughter who has a story that looks different than it should have. Church, will you bow your heads with me this morning?
Heavenly Father, we just confess in this place, Lord, that we are only scratching the surface, I feel, of what life with you and life in your kingdom and life by your side and life in and under your authority actually looks like. And so Jesus, as we enter into the next few weeks of actually saying yes and exploring who it is that you say that you are, who it is that you say that we are, and how we are to exist, what the implications of living, of existing in your kingdom actually are, I pray that you would open our eyes, that you would rekindle a sense of the joy of our salvation, Jesus. And in whatever way, shape, or form, you know that we need Jesus. Would you equip us in the same way that you equip the Son in this story? Would you equip us to stand up, to learn how to walk in and to wear the identity that you are freely bestowing upon us? Would you show us how to exist in your kingdom? So, Lord, that kingdom come in my life. That kingdom come in each one of our lives. And that kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.